This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. Hi, I'm Hanif Baharuddin and this is Night School, the show that explores ideas and themes in the social sciences and the humanities. In this episode, Simon Soon and I are going to be talking to Joe Kukatas, theatre actor, writer, director and the artistic director of the Instant Cafe Theatre Company. She recently wrote a long article that reflected on the fate of the arts during this COVID-19 pandemic and it was published on a website called Arts Equator. I highly suggest you check that article out. The link will be in this podcast. This conversation is an extension and a reflection on that article. We begin by reflecting on the perception that people somehow have towards celebrities and artists. I think the, the assumption always is that if you're in the arts or if you're if you're an entertainer, that therefore you're you're always that you're well off, and that's not the reality. I, I know many people who are famous and who are celebrities, but who actually are living, you know, on the edge, who live from job to job, and uh, because they don't have EPF and they don't have you know pension that's going to be coming up, they don't have. Uh, so that they are people who don't have um, uh, income unless they have work. And this this means people like Tony, people like Sharifa Awani. They may be famous, but they they aren't necessarily, they're definitely not rich. I can safely say that. If I think the problem is sometimes some people who make it and then they make it, they make it very well. But this is true everywhere in the world. I mean, for every famous Hollywood actor, you have 999 uh, people who are struggling. Mm-hmm. And that's why I think I equated it to a, a blue-collar worker, because um, most most people in the art sector are are that are, are, are working um, in the gig economy. I think. Yeah, I, I think that's that's something that I think people sort of like that comparison is kind of apt. I think to a certain extent because people don't see it that way, right? Mm-hmm. And and once you use the term blue-collar worker, then it makes more sense, I guess, to a certain extent. Um, but before before we talk deeper about it, um, for the benefit of our listeners who might not have read the article yet, maybe you can just give a brief summary on. What did you write there? Yeah. <laughs> uh, I'll try to be brief. As you know, the article was extremely long. Yes. Um, but, <laughs> uh, I, I, I think I, I wanted to talk, I mean, of course, because we're doing this pandemic, so I want to look at what was wrong perhaps with um, our art sector if a pandemic like this can push it towards the edge of annihilation, right? And I was looking at how other countries are dealing with making art in the time of uh, COVID-19, you know, other countries and our neighbours like Indonesia, Singapore, Thailand, and people further away, Australia, Taiwan, Korea, uh, Germany, and saying, why do we not even approximate kind of view of the arts and therefore the health of the art sector in comparison to those other countries. And I think I was looking at just some long-standing systemic problems, and a lot of it was problems of perception, that we don't have the perception of the arts here is that it's something really quite insignificant. Right. Where, where is this perception coming from? Do you think it's a public perception on the whole, or is this mm. on a, does it work on a governmental level? Uh, yes, it's, enough sort of like support coming from the public? Yeah. Uh, yeah to get a sense that, that it is still in some ways connected or relevant to society. Yeah, you know, it's, it's a really big question. It's a really good question. You know, somebody, somebody messaged me yesterday because she's appearing, she's going to be talking on a web series as well. And she's a designer. And she was saying, you know, if you think about design in other parts of Southeast Asia, which country do you think of as being, you know, 
good art, good design. So I said, well, definitely, of course, you think Thailand. <laughs> you think of Thailand, <laughs> you think Cambodia, you think Bali. You think of performing arts, the richness of performing arts, whether it's traditional or contemporary and forward thinking. You definitely think Indonesia. You think Singapore, of course. You think the Philippines. A lot of homegrown stuff and also deeply intellectual, of course, in the Philippines, strong intellectual underpinning. Um, you know, so I, you know, and I said, of course, I don't know as much about uh, places like like Laos or, or, or Myanmar, which are much smaller, much smaller, of course. But I said, Malaysia doesn't factor in. And my friend said to me, how come whenever there's a list of things of cities, Kale is never there. Kale is never one of the cities where you think about when you think about the arts. And I said, that's a really good question. I think it's a question that's worth investigating, considering that we have uh, an economy which is supposed to be or used to be thought of as being a strong economy. The arts never grew in the same way that the rest of the economy was growing. And uh, what is the reason for that, I think, is a really important question for us to, to examine. I think one, of, one reason is, is attitudes towards the arts. You know, it's always been regarded as something for a child, unnecessary. You're, if you're not intelligent, you go into the art stream. If you're intelligent, you go into the science stream. This is a lot, I think, has a lot of bearing on, therefore, our public perception of the arts. And, of course, if art, I think once art was taken out of the mainstream education, it took away any understanding of it and any value that it could possibly be, be given. And also... You know, it, it's, it's like not knowing what something is. If, 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 yeah. if somebody's never seen a, a tomato, <laughs> you got hard, it's really hard to convince them about, about the existence or necessity of it. It, it just is not present, you know, and our arts is not present here the way it is just so absolutely present in other places. Do you think our government is doing enough given that, for example, I think last year there were attempts to at least abolish the science and art stream yeah. and... That's one level, but then there's also the sort of like increasing top of this very nebulous thing called the creative industry. <laughs> that's yeah. a blanket term, right? Like that's supposed to sort of like cover, you know, a whole range of sort of like creative endeavors yeah. that yeah. has an economic sort of like impetus to how yeah. we sort of like describe, you know, the growth of this sector. Right. Uh, well, is that sufficient or do we need a sort of like new paradigm when we? Beginning to sort of even sort of like talk about the arts. Yeah. You know, I think the, um, I really just detest actually this term creative yeah. industry because one, I don't think we have an industry. And I think even, you know, this, the idea of the sort of creative economy was something that was sort of bandied about uh, at a time in, in the UK when they were dismantling the arts. So they were, I mean, after the arts were very vibrant as part of, you know, um, a public good. And, and where art is part of education, art is part of health, art is part... So, so art is seen in, in, in those terms. And, and you still see that in Europe. I mean, not the UK, but in the rest of Europe, art is seen as just a basic natural right that you have. I remember meeting a German dramaturg. She came to do some workshops with Instant Cafe many years ago, and she started off by talking about the arts in Germany. And, um, you know, she said, well, it's, you know, it's as basic as sanitation and as roads and as healthcare, that everybody has a right to art. Mm-hmm. And the Malaysians who were attending the workshop were kind of like bedazzled and befuddled by this notion because it seems so foreign to us. But in fact, we've inherited this sort of British system that came about um, post 
um, Thatcher, which was, no, the arts have to be justified, you know, because the arts stopped being something that was regarded as being basic to our humanity. And it was privatized along with so many other things which are now falling apart in the rest of the world, which must be seen as being public goods. I mean, education is a public good. It should not be privatized. Health is a public good. It should not be privatized. The arts is a public good. It should not be privatized. But as soon as we went on that road towards privatization, then it becomes something that you better, you better, you better justify its purpose and its role and you better show how many miles to the gallon, you know, it's going to get. And all of this without actually supporting it, you know, so you want to support an airline industry, you want to support a, a, a car industry, you want it miles to the gallon, but you will actually put money into it. Unlike those industries, and that's why I don't like the term creative industry, it was a... Um, humiliating amount of money that was injected and then want to then call it industry and call it a creative economy. You can't call it that. And even the term creative economy is something which really nobody uses anywhere else in the world. And we're still holding on to it. And I don't know why. And I I wonder, you know, on some level, this has to do with our lack of institutional memory. Uh, Given that in some ways, the department of, I was just sort of like doing some background reading for this and even uh, with the department of culture, for example, it's been in existence since 1953, and that was a, a George Templer sort of like policy under the right. sort of land design of, of trying to formulate this idea of Malayan nation, right? Uh, and and it was part under it was first part under the welfare department or something like that. Right. Then it was in '64, then moved into Ministry of Information. Right. Right. Uh, prior to the sort of like uh, relocation of this department into tourism mm. in the 1887 yes, right. uh, during that period, right? Uh, and all these constants of sort of like shifting and, you know, pushing of culture mm-hmm. uh, across various sort of like ministry seems mm-hmm. to sort of like suggest that it's also lacking kind of like rooted knowledge of yes. where, you know, what it was doing in the past and mm-hmm. how this past can inform present decisions. Mm-hmm. I don't know what you think of that. Yeah, I, I, th- I think the, the, the kind of other Yatin kind of uh, idea that I kind of put, I wrote about in my essay was, you know, where should we place this, this difficult child? We, we know we have it. We're not quite sure where to place it. And I think that's why we got placed in so, in so many different areas. And, and even those areas are often kind of quite unwelcome, you know. So I, I think I've kind of lost track of how many different places it's been in. And depending on good fortune or bad fortune, depending on who was there at the time, there's either been growth or else there's been stagnation. But there's been pretty much stagnation, I think, since the 80s. There was some, you know, since the late 80s, I should say. I mean, there was good people there, I think, earlier. Again, people with vision, people with direction who were trying to shift things. But I, you know, the, the big question is really, for me, not about whether or not um, the government has put enough money into something like the arts, right? Because I, look, I think of other countries in the region who are, who are less well off, right? But it's how they positioned it. You know, in, in Thailand, um, dance is taught, is taught as part of the mainstream curriculum. Uh, so it, it's this, uh, and even if it's the same dance that you're being taught every day, everyone learns Ramayana, it's significant, it's important. It's, it's being told that actually part of who you are is this connection to you in relationship to your body. It becomes therefore another way of regarding knowledge, right? Knowledge is not simply something that's something that you learn from a book. You can learn about the knowledge that you, you gain from inhabiting creatures inside your body or 
different characters inside your body is also therefore a kind of knowledge and it's, it's given space in the curriculum you know art is taught in schools you know to a high level in other countries why not in malaysia so what was that decision part of me wonders um and somebody said to me yesterday only only yesterday they said well why do we never when we talk about the arts talk about the racial problems that we have in malaysia surely race is one of the main is a large reason why we cannot have a, a sensible open-minded and non-fractious um, conversation about the arts uh, post-1969, in order to not have issues to do with race, you remove all cultural references. So you, rem you remove culture in order to not have to sort of say, this is culture. And yet, in insidious way, there is a culture, but it's not everybody's and it's not everything. So it's, it's a very, we have a very um, dishonest relationship, I think, to culture in this country, because we think if we're going to have to talk about culture, uh, somebody's going to feel that they're, they're losing out or somebody's going to feel that they are not being represented. I mean, which is exactly what happened with this whole debate over cut, for example. You know, it was cut um, about, um, I mean, that the calligraphy debate. Was that about culture or was that about race? So even something like that can quickly turn into a discourse about race as opposed to uh, let's introduce this as a way of learning about each other's culture. <laughs> you know, it's a failure of communication about what is learning perhaps as well, you know, and why we learn things and why we want to appreciate things and why we want to appreciate what's different about somebody else. So I will learn your culture, you learn my culture. And it's a shame because actually the potential for untold riches is right there if mm. only we could put this into our education system. Has there been a time you think that um, this policy has been successfully, or, or, or this idea of sort of learning has been successfully translated into a policy or, or any form of sort of like experimentation, mm. whether it's within the government sort of like, uh, you know, schooling system or mm. in other sort of like avenues? Uh, in the history of sort of like Malaysia or the recent history of well, I mean, as I said, I think that, you know, when I was asked this question yesterday by somebody, I thought, well, this really needs to go and be researched. So I don't want to speak out of turn because I don't think I've done enough research to, to mark its history, really. But I mean, just sort of anecdotally, I, you know, I remember as, as a kid, you know, learning these things in school. You know, we learned dragon dancers and we learned, uh, you know, Tari uh, and we learned the, 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 the camera was called now, the, with the candle dance, right? We learned, oh, yeah. we, we, we learned these things. And you didn't question them. They were kind of fun things that you did in school when I, when I was six. Um, I don't, don't, you don't have those things anymore, right? And I, I remember right. the time when they, when they decided to start banning certain things or those to ban lion dancing. You ban Wayang Kulit, so it's an equal opportunity banning of anything cultural. Um, <laughs> we, I think we never really quite recovered from that, right? So we had a policy to, to ban it, and then slowly things crept in, crept back in, because people cannot not do what they want to do. So uh, the Wayang Kulit masters sort of came back from some semi-obscurity and just continued to do it quietly. The lion um, mask uh, painters came back and started painting uh, their, their lion heads again. Um, but we haven't had um, uh, enough proper, I think, discussion about this. Although last year, of course, with the formation of Reformatsi, there are three groups in Reformatsi, and one of them is on reform in arts education. So they have been working really hard and quite comprehensively, and I think they were working with Dr. Masley before his um, 
unfortunate termination and, you know, thinking that things can go ahead. I don't know where they are right now, but, you know, that's what I think they're trying to pursue that, pursue this, because I think it is important that art goes back into education if we want to have any chance of it being significant in people's lives again. Yeah, it has to start there. That was Joko Katas, the artistic director of the Instant Cafe Theatre Company. She's also a writer, director and theatre actor. And together with Simon Soon, we've been talking about the fate of the arts during this COVID-19 pandemic. You've been listening to Night School with me, Hanif Baharudin. We're going for a short break. Stay tuned, BFM 89.9. BFM 89.9, you're tuned in to Night School with me, Hanif Baharudin. I'm joined by Simon Soon and our guest of the week, Joku Katas. She's the artistic director of the Instant Cafe Theatre Company and we're currently reflecting on the fate of the arts in light of the COVID-19 pandemic. Here's the second part of the conversation. Do you see a, a kind of shift in, uh, I guess, the, the geographical alignments, uh, whether we are sort of like more aware of sort of neighboring cultures or neighboring artistic sort of practices today, uh, or are we still sort of like slavishly using London, New York as a model for sort of like best practice or, or is a younger generation really, uh, you know, searching for sort of like other forms of sort of like alignments? And, and yeah, I, th- I think they're two different things, right? Yeah. I think there are two different things because one is about, you know, who your influences are for yourself as an artist. Whose work are you looking at? Who are you interested in? And I think a lot of uh, young artists are interested in what's around them locally uh, as well as what's far away. Because, and I think this is what's the internet age that you find, and this is something that's been said about millennials, right? Which I think is a very positive thing about the millennial um, attitude is that if they're interested in, in things, for example, to do with the environment, they will go to look at what's going on in Bolivia. They will search the internet and they'll see, oh my God, in Bolivia, this is, what, this is what's going on, this is how people are handling it. And they will take from that and apply it to things that they also believe in. They're not going to think, oh no, that's Bolivians, we shouldn't be interested. Right? So in that way, it's, it's kind of a borderless world, which is, which is quite a, kind, of, kind of good. Um, so I, th- I think in terms of, let's like, say, as an artist, if you're interested in, in, how, in how, how to make things or you're interested in the conversation about something, I think people will go anywhere, you know, um, where language can help them, uh, if they need language. But I think that, unfortunately, I think we're stuck with some old infrastructure that's right. come, and old models that have come from, uh, for example, the UK. Um, and I don't think it's the best model for us. I mean, the, the UK model and, and the US model for the performing arts is um, production, production, production. You must produce and then you can, um, in a certain short time frame, and then that production will be bought by somebody, consumed by somebody, and then you carry on with the next thing. Is that the best way for us to create work? Is that the best way to have, uh, and that's what what they call the creative economy, uh, which is very much a product-driven economy. But that, as I said, was something, a kind of a tactic that was used by people to counter this, this what they felt was a kind of dismantling of their art scene. So they quickly came up with this idea of the creative economy um, will help contribute toward the economy, so therefore do not dismantle it, just help help move it in, into some different areas. Um, but here we, we kind of just took on this model even though we didn't have that market and mm-hmm. neither did we actually have the mass of people making work. So we never went into the into the side of developing these things. We, we have 
you know, we have an in KL one art school, really. I mean, one full-time arts where you can get a proper training program in, in the performing arts. Other places are diploma programs or they are very mixed programs, you know, media plus performing arts or film plus media plus performing arts. So whereas in Indonesia, you, you know, you every every city has at least one, at least one. Right. And not to mention, they also have the Sangha model, right? The apprenticeship yes. model that sort of goes yes. hand in hand with the former institutions of learning, yes. uh, which then sort of supplements it by providing their sort of like extra training and discipline, yes. a disciplinary sort of like training that is yes. very often incommunicable through, I don't know, the structured sort of like course learning, especially when you have, I don't know, 30 students under your belt, I imagine. Yeah. Uh, but even if you look at, like, for example, the graduates of Ashwara, right? I, I've sort of met with them a couple of times. They did a workshop with them last year. And and I think, I mean, some years ago, especially when the program was extremely good and you had all these very interesting and very exciting young people coming out of Ashwara, but they had nowhere to go. Who, mm-hmm. Where could they go? There was no institution to then, to then take them out, to take them on. I mean, some of them would write to Instant Cafe and say, oh, we'd like to come and you know, work with you. And I, I don't like that. I have, I have nothing to offer you. I have no space. I have no theater, I have no funds. So as much as I would like to be able to, to, to take you in because you're, you're, you're smart, you're well-trained, you're, I can help you, I can mentor you. I'd like to have you as part of, you know, I, I don't have, I don't have that. So there's no places for uh, even the, the few graduates who are out there. Uh, I mean, I'm talking here now purely about the performing arts to, to go. On a more concrete level, do you see other governments being able to address this on a policy level? Are there more sort of like sustained way in which, um, uh, you know, whatever small part of money that's available for the arts mm. could be more effectively channeled into cultivating? I mean, I think this is a conversation that did start here, you know, with the new government in 2018. It was, okay, now let's, let's try to now since we can start fresh, okay, let's, let's, let's try to have these conversations. So these, these began to be, I mean, I, I spoke quite frankly to, to people like Izan from Chandana about this. And I said, you know, if you want to really grow the arts, you need to support the big companies who have been, you know, because they will, they, our, our natural inclination is, is to try to um, support the next generation. That's kind of what, what you want to do. But instead, things kind of go into events, things go into one-off things, things go into festivals. And I have a real problem with festivals because I think that festivals is kind of a flash and burn attitude towards the arts. It's, well, whoever's got something out there, come and give it to us, we'll pay you a little bit. Um, often, artists don't really make very much from these festivals. Festivals get a kind of a big name for themselves. But the artists themselves, actually, it's just, as I said, a gig economy. And, and so they become good at just rolling out the thing that they do. But I feel that the kind of the depth of work, we don't get there because where everybody's just constantly trying to manage, trying to struggle to just to keep going, as opposed to saying, to kind of like being a bit willful and saying, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to abandon this practice, this direction I'm going in with my art because I don't think it's, I don't think it's interesting. I'm going to leave that. And I'm going to go this direction, you know, which is what an artist should be doing. I mean, they work their salt because they're, they're trying to also um, become better artists. But here it, it becomes something where more too often it becomes, well, I, I've gotten this and somebody wants this product and so I will stay here and I will sell it. And I remember like some people in St. Cathy said to me many years ago, they said, you know, Joe, why don't we just continue doing the comedy reviews? We should do that because it make, we can make a living. We can, 
we can sell it here, we can sell it there. And I said, but that's all we do. We started off doing the kind of satirical reviews for a purpose because we were trying to be critical of our society. But now as I felt more and more people were kind of doing that kind of stand-up comedy or doing that kind of critical, you know, political stand-up, I felt we didn't need to do that so much anymore. And there's other kinds of art which I felt we did need to make. And so we need to change direction, even if there's, even if there's no funding there. But it's because you need to do that as an artist. I wonder if you can bring it into comparison, given that you have also done extensive work in Singapore and mm. working with, I guess, repertory theatre companies like Wild right. Rice, right. which actually do receive, um, I guess, these kind of like uh, long-term sustainable funding packages, right? Uh, mm. How does that sort of like compare, given that also Singapore gets a flag, that there might have been too much sort of like control coming from the government? Well, what's the trade-off there in terms of your how you sort of like what's your take on this well you know we we started off in the pretty much similar position in the in the 80s actually i mean isana budaya and the esplanade started building the same year right um but isana budaya went on to, to become pretty much a building for hire without much strong direction and without much vision whereas esplanade i think saw itself as more than just a venue you know they saw it as, itself as being a place with um, a purpose and they hired people who uh, were not just going to program but people who were going to themselves or who were artists working inside that building. I mean I'm just using explanation as one example and of course Singapore quite quickly kind of realized for themselves that they needed the arts right in order to make Singapore an exciting interesting city which people would want to come to. You know Malaysia doesn't has has a lot to offer in terms of natural resources, uh, nature, a lot of things to attract people to Malaysia. Singapore did not have that because it's small. It doesn't have massive forests and lakes and, and all the rest of it. So Singapore knew that they would need to do something. So they invested in the arts. And so they, 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 they put money into uh, arts housing, arts policies to um, boost up the arts sector. And that's why the art sector could move ahead very quickly. Now, at the same time, of course, I know the Singapore government does like to control things. They, they were hoping they could still control things. But the, of course, the thing that happens is if you, if you, once you give artists um, room to run, they will run. And then, of course, they kind of control them. So there's a constant, you know, there's, there's a constant um, kind of negotiation and back and forth. And sometimes they will give money to a company and then take it away again. And, you know, I have friends who have suffered losses like this when they have stood their ground about some of the work that they want to do. But the thing is, by just by, by, by stepping up and saying, you know what, we're going to put our money where our, our mouth is, it did make the art sector boom. It did. Then they try to control some of the booming because, because they were making too much noise and they were being too liberal and all the rest of it. But it ended up that they can then have a conversation from both sides of the art sector, the, the ones trying to control it and the ones trying to make it, they could engage. You know? And I think that kind of level of engagement is always important. So therein lies the rub, right? Do you think there is a distrust coming from the state in regards to artists? Not so much artists, but yeah. I think that's an, that's true everywhere in the world. People always, of course, yeah. In the same way, of course, it's the same thing with education, really. I mean, there's that famous cartoon, right, about who's going to give you the education to overthrow them, right? But in a way, that's what a government does. A government which gives you a good education system will then end up creating citizens which will say, hold on, 
do we really need a government? <laughs> you know, we can create a society of people who are libertarian, who are anarchists, who will actually say, you know what, minimal government. So the arts, therefore, even in, in, let's say in the Soviet Union, we want, they want to, to have the arts because they have a long history of the arts as well in the former Russia. But at the same time, they, they, they're terrified of it because they know it kind of engenders you know, uh, self-reflection. It creates people who are going to question. Uh, it, it creates another kind of intelligence because you're not, you're telling people that there's more to your life and your existence than being a worker. Right. Of course, generally people want to, those in power, whether it's government or I would say actually not government so much, I think as a power elite, want people to be um, workers. Mm. And so sometimes art also becomes that, that you kind of give people a bit of art so they become more happy workers. Let's, let's not fool ourselves <laughs> about that as well, right? Because ultimately... Well, you even talk about the in terms of the economy. Yes. So that it becomes work and it becomes only about production. Yeah. No, but, but when I say happy worker, I, I don't mean necessarily people who work in the arts, but happy workers meaning that, you know, well, let's give people good art. Have nice lots of art so they're happy, they can go to the cinema every day or go to the theatre and they won't worry yeah. about what, what we're actually doing behind the scenes. So, you know, sometimes I think there's always been, a, there's always a history of, in the, of, of all art and complicity, right? I mean, you think about uh, Mozart and his patron at the castle in Salzburg, the very interesting, tricky relationships. But that's what artists also do. They know they have to negotiate with power. They know they have to, I think as one friend of mine, a director said, you know, the idea is you need to, you need to fool the universe. That's what artists are trying to do because artists are the ultimate outsiders. And we're trying to look at it. And I was actually having a conversation with a friend of mine just this morning about, well, why then are we attracted to art? Because if everything is uniform, right? If somebody does something different, you, you turn and you look at it. You want to see that because we get bored. As human beings, we're bored by uniformity, right? So if you have a beautiful Persian carpet, oh, it's a beautiful carpet. Oh, look at that one break in the pattern. That's that one flaw. And that flaw is actually what will take our eye. Not because we're going to see how awful that flaw is, but because it is interesting. It, it stands outside the rest of the, this, this really quite you know, lovely, lovely um, uh, piece of, of, uh, of weave. So I think in that way, why are we attracted to artists? Why are artists, why do people pay attention to them? It's because they are a bit outside that mainstream. And so it, they allow us to look at something a bit differently. And, and we need to do that. I think as human beings, we crave change. We crave, I mean, it's, it's the same reason why we find it difficult being in isolation, right? Uh, we, we need to see, um, yeah, we, we, we need, okay, I'm getting a bit incoherent here. I'm getting a bit existential about the arts here. But um, we're not content, you know, just to have the same thing every day. We need diversion. Uh, we need things that will make us, whether the diversion is external or internal, it's still diversion, right? From, and, and uh, you know, I was talking to somebody else as well about how we've come, it's become the norm, I think, especially in Asia, to think that work is life, wow. you know, whereas it used to be, uh, I think that the ideal was that, yes, you work, and then you have your life, yeah. right? And that, the, and the, the, the purpose of work is to enjoy the things that are life, whether it's time with your children, reading, painting, people uh, making their own, you know, the, the Wayan Kulit master who during the monsoon season will make his puppets because you can't fish, 
so you don't fish. What's the point of fishing? There's no fish. These are too rough. So you turn your hand and to making those puppets. And so there's no difference between you, the artist, and you, the human being. And that's the thing which I, I noticed. When I spent six months in, in Indonesia once uh, doing research on traditional performing artists. And most of them, when I was kind of met, when I went to talk to them, said to me, what do you mean traditional performing artists? Because for them, it's just like performing artists. They're just artists, right? There's no difference. It's not performing traditional, non-traditional. Um, so they, they found me quite naive uh, because it is just different forms, different ways of making art. But what struck me in Indonesia was that almost every Indonesian I met could do some art of some kind, whether it's to play an instrument or to make something or to sing or to dance or to <laughs> act. Uh, everybody had, and it was, there was no separation, you know, between the parts of, of, of the self. Yeah. Joe, um, do you think that we are suffering from an identity crisis that is somehow making us lack that sense of ownership of our art? Mm. Identity crisis. Because we can't define what it is, right? Yeah, and therefore we don't know how to, you know, you know, take ownership of it because we can't define whether it's, you know, the, the whole question of whether, oh, whether this is a Malay art, whether this is a Chinese art, whether this is a Malaysian art, what is a Malaysian art, things like that. Yeah. Uh, because yeah. we can't define those things, it is somehow making us lack that sense of ownership. One way or another? You know, I think that's also a really interesting question. I, um, I think, you know, I wonder whether or not it stops us or whether or not it has paralyzed us in some way. Um, I think there's something in what you say, for sure. I, I remember I did a project some years ago in Japan, and I was one of three Malaysians involved, right? So there was myself, um, Namron, who you, you will all know as a very, now very well-known actor-director in film, but also started off in theatre, and Lo Kokman, who's a Chinese um, theatre director and designer. And three of us were involved in this, in this large project with 16 other artists from the Philippines, Indonesia, Thailand, Japan, Singapore. And uh, when we, and we ended up making, working on a project for two years, we met at different times over the two and a half years. And we finally ended up making a, a, a large kind of multi-lingual, multi-story piece called Hotel Grand Asia. <laughs> Right. And it's interesting, Hotel Grand Asia had a story that was set in the Philippines. There's another story that was set in Japan. There's a story about a Singaporean going to the Philippines. There's a story about an Indonesian and a, and a Thai uh, person on, the, on a boat on the high seas. There was no Malaysian story. Oh. Right. And it was interesting, but you see, when, but for all the good reasons, because myself, Kokman and Namron could work with anybody. We were part of everybody's story i directed one of that one section which was with the indonesian and the thai the story about the the, the three men on the boat on the high seas right Kokman was involved in in another project which was about a filipino sex worker working in japan so we were involved and in fact created those pieces cross-border very easily we didn't feel we needed to tell like our story we just were telling the story and then one day somebody said how come Malaysian, there's no Malaysian story. And we're like, oh yeah, there's no Malaysian story. Then we said, well, what would be that Malaysian story? And all the other stories were stories of identity, you know, the, the rich Singaporean who gets kind of naively gets cheated by uh, a Filipino. Uh, this poor uh, transient Filipino sex worker 
who gets exploited by her Japanese boyfriend in Japan, in, in Tokyo. A couple, um, uh, a Japanese and Thai uh, couple who are having relationship problems in a hotel room in Japan. But where was the Malaysian story? Um, and I kind of, we, we kind of saw it as both our strength and our weakness, that we didn't feel that the need to say we need to have our own story, but also because we could, you know, sometimes in, in these kind of multi-ethnic collaborations, there are, there are people who cannot work with each other. The Malaysians could work, we could work with everybody. So we were, we were, we were very collaborative, we were very flexible in, and very able to adapt uh, to, to other people's stories. Um, but I do wonder why, uh, in a way, why we didn't insist on making our own story. But, and maybe it's because we, all three of us came from really different backgrounds. And we were able to develop our friendship, actually, in that project. And we, we, we often said to each other, we would never have become the close friends that we were to become if it hadn't been for that project. Because finally, we were given funding for us to get to know each other. We were given funding to uh, learn from each other, appreciate each other's talent and work. And in Malaysia, you're just struggling within your own little ghetto to get along. And you don't have that, that kind of time to just, I mean, we, had, we were given time to explore and develop uh, work with each other. Um, and, we, and, we wanted to use, and we wanted to use that opportunity to work with as many people as possible as, as well uh, in that. I always say that uh, whenever that I go overseas, it's my opportunity to meet another fellow Malaysian colleague. Yes. yes. <laughs> Rather than here. When yeah. 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 I mean, I do think I completely answered your question there, Hannah, because I think, it's, again, it's a really good one. Are we, are we, is it our identity? But I also, I mean, I was sorry, I'm having, having lots of these conversations recently. And I was talking to a friend of mine just recently about, you know, how I used to feel always, I mean, I came, when I came back to Malaysia, I've been, I've been away from Malaysia from the time I was seven to the time I was 21, basically. And so when I came back, I was made to feel quite unwelcome. And I was told that you'll never fit in and you'll never belong. And you sound too nuts my way. When I first came back, I sounded very English. And, you know, and I, I was traveling abroad because of my father's work, right? And he it, actually working for the Malaysian government, <laughs> you know, oddly enough. And so I always felt this, of course, that I was Malaysian because my father's work was, you know, with the foreign service. So of course, I'm Malaysian. But, you know, I came back without any language skills. I came back without really knowing very much. I, I came back to having no friends in Malaysia. And so then I kind of felt always I needed to kind of like prove myself to be very Malaysian and try to learn more about this, this country, which was now home right um but those things which were naturally part of my own personal identity i kind of like then kind of pushed aside because i felt oh i, I can't be that i need to be something else in a way but it's been interesting for me during this um, lockdown you want you want to go and do the things that you just love and so i've gone back to reading the books which i love and listening to the music that i love and i began to think you know what what is it to be an artist it is to create authentically from yourself right and yourself your, yourself as an artist you are is complex and you create your most beautiful and authentic work when you're being honest to your actually authentic self and here i think because we're constantly being told what it is you know this is not your culture this is not your culture this is not your culture we get into a state of confusion and second guessing and maybe that's why i either end up just copying other people's work or we end up not you know um trusting our own work because I think if we were just to allow who we are, we are really interesting. I think 
the, the Malaysian person is a strange amalgam of many cultures and differences and anxieties, which I would love to see expressed. Right? I would love to see that expressed. Um, but well, you can't sell that. You can't sell that. So instead, you say, "Well, look, here's here's a um, here's a musical which was written, you know, in the 1980s, and it's quite famous. We'll put it on." Or here's a play that was done by Dinsman. So in the 1970s, we'll, we'll put that on. Because we are forced to do things fast. And, and yet, yeah, an artist is actually to... My, my dad always used to say, if you want to be an artist, he said, you need to be a bum. Wow. You need to sit around and be a bum. <laughs> you know, <laughs> look at people, think about them, and then wonder what's going on. And then you'll create something. And you rush the process, you, you, you come... You, you, you produce something. I know this, 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 I, I feel sometimes we, we, we don't give space to the artist who um, really wants to kind of like ask those difficult questions of themselves, existential yeah. questions of themselves. Uh, those things take time. And those things take kind of a certain kind of audacity as well. <laughs> All right, yeah. Okay, so we have to end this conversation soon. Uh, but before that, uh, I think you ended your article by saying that this is a perfect time. I mean, the lockdown, you know, the crisis that we're currently facing is a perfect time for us to sort of reflect and do something about the arts, right? Um, so can, can you elaborate a bit more? What, what do you mean by that? You know, and why do you think that this is the perfect time to, to, to I guess, focus our energy? Or at least give art um, that, that benefit of the doubt or, the, you know, reform the art or reform our attitude towards the art. Production or reflection, or yeah. are these mutually yeah. exclusive? Yeah, <laughs> that's a paradox, right? Because yeah, I think if I say focus, focus can be by being very by by unfocusing. You know, maybe we can focus by unfocusing of, or or refocusing on something else. So I think what I was trying to say in the article was to say question everything, question why you're doing something the way that you're doing it. Uh, you, you may as well do that now because it's not like it, like whatever you're going to produce is going to have a ready audience or a ready market right now. So the time that we've never had, we now have, right? In fact, when they told me that the MCO was going to be lifted quite soon, I was quite worried because I felt, I mean, on, I mean, I, I, this, this is just on a purely you know, personal level because, of course, while the MCO if it's going to be lifted for Malaysians, will be lifted for Malaysians who work in all the other sectors, it will make no difference to the arts because the public spaces will not be open. And I think people will also have a fear about going into closed spaces for a while, right? I mean, I was reading interesting articles from, of people who came out of the lockdown in Wuhan, how long it took them just psychologically to be able to kind of like re-encounter people in a public space again. It, it's, we've gone through something quite major, you know? We've gone through a, a huge physical trauma. It's going to take us some time to come out of it. And, and I think the, the arts is... Um, is uh, um, Artists, those spaces where arts uh, uh, exist are not those spaces that people are going to go to for a while. But, so that's why I say, take your time, or, or rather refocus. But like, I, I know for myself as well, like I, I, I keep on saying to myself, because I've had six weeks, what have I done? And I haven't done nearly as much as I, as I would have liked to. And, and, and of course, I've read many articles about what this does to us, what isolation has done to us, what loneliness do, does to us, how it, it makes us not able to create. You know, um, so I try not to hate myself too much so I haven't written you know, that novel <laughs> during the, this time in lockdown. But I think even this kind of conversation is important. This kind of, um, kind of 
breaking down of everything, even if we use this time to break everything apart and look at all these Lego blocks on the ground and say, what do they mean? That's already useful rather than saying, okay, we just wait, stubbornly wait it all out and then just go and do exactly the same. That I don't think is, is good. And I've noticed quite a few kind of younger pe people on Facebook kind of like losing it and uh, saying, you know, what's going on? I just don't, I don't understand what's happening. And I said, continue to say that. Continue to ask what you're doing. You know, it's, that can only be a good thing because we don't, we, we've been living in a really, really, really imperfect system. And I think we need to say it's a really imperfect system and it's a system which has not enabled us to create great work. So we need to question the system. You just heard from Joko Katas, the artistic director of the Instant Cafe Theatre Company. She's also a theatre actor, writer and director and we've been reflecting on the fate of the arts during this COVID-19 pandemic and beyond. It's based on an article that she wrote that was published on artsequator.com. We'll include the link to the article on our podcast. In the meantime, share your thoughts with us by tweeting us at BFM Radio or through our email nightschool at bfm.my. Don't forget to also download the BFM app which you can find on the Apple App Store and Google Play. I'm Hanif Baharudin and together with Simon Soon, you've been listening to Night School on BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Remember to stay at home if and when possible, practice physical distancing and stay safe. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.